We're going to be teaching um, in Titus chapter 2, and God has put this set of scripture on my heart for a number of years now that I've never had an opportunity to teach from up front here, so I'm pretty excited to get, it, to get uh, a chance to go through this. Um, it ties in with what we've been going through and what we've been teaching as Rory has taken us through the book of James, in that the book of James teaches us that saving faith uh, bears forth the evidence of works. That works is part of the evidence that is born out of saving faith. And those works are obedience to God's word and good works towards other men. And that's just a fruit of what we see out of lives that are set aside and separated to Christ. James is an instructional letter. And it's one that just shows us what it looks like to be a disciple of following Christ. I guess I had to make sure everybody has a Bible. Does everybody have a Bible there that, if not, raise your hands, you guys, and we'll put one in, uh, in your hands because we're going to be going through a number of scriptures this morning, kind of walking our way through this. Thanks, Dustin. Anyway, as we get into Titus chapter 2, this verse, this set of verses, uh, verse 11 through 15, uh, we are on a similar, similar vein of, of discussion in that it's, it's a letter written to Titus from Paul um, describing the same sets of what, what happens and what does God do in our lives to produce this fruit, to bear forth this evidence of what it looks like to be saved, what it looks like to be born again, shining your light in the midst of this dark world. Uh, A little bit of background on this letter to Titus. Uh, First off, is written in A.D. 62 to 64 sometime. Uh, Titus, as described in verse 4 of chapter 1, by Paul, is a true son in our common faith. Titus was one of Paul's protégés, just exactly like Timothy was one of Paul's protégés. He was raised up in the gospel along with Paul as Paul went around to, to plant some of the churches we read about in the New Testament and the epistles. For example, you know, Titus was involved with Paul in the planting of the Corinthian church. Titus was involved in, in everything you read about in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. Titus was there and part of that. Um, Titus was also, in Acts chapter 15, Titus was there and present uh, with the Jerusalem council where Paul had to come down from Antioch Uh, to Jerusalem to meet with them to discuss what was going on as far as the heresy that was being introduced by the Judaizers and saying that all Gentiles that came to faith had to be circumcised also. That was also part of Titus's life in Christ. There was was a lot of, of trust and faith that Paul had in Titus. Titus had Paul's full confidence in theological understanding and convictions evidenced by the demanding ministry that Paul left Titus in on the island of Crete. 
that's where this letter was, was written to, is to Titus as he was left in Crete to take over the ministry of those churches that were planted there. And there was a number of things that, Titus had, uh, that Paul had left Titus with the responsibility of, part of which was to, to um, um, uh, anoint or appoint leaders, elders of the churches and what they should look like and how they should be um, trained up and what their responsibilities should be. So given that as kind of a background, maybe a little bit as to where we are with Titus, let's read the passage, or I will read the passage. I know Rory says that sometimes, where let's read it together and everybody kind of starts to read together, but let me just read that for us, okay? Um, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15 says this. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, as we enter into worship you in your truth, in your revealed truth in these verses, Lord, God, we ask that you would show us the glory and the grace of the incarnate Son of God, Lord, that left his place of glory and majesty to, be, to come down to this, this earth, be born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, to live a sinless life, to offer himself on the cross for our sin, to pay the penalty that is due us, to release us and redeem us from that bondage, and who sits at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we thank you, and we ask that you would show us and shine in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, this morning, what your magnificent grace given to us does for us, how your grace teaches, how your grace enables, how your grace disciplines, how your grace works. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, guys, so what we see in this section of Titus chapter 2 is the saving plan of God condensed into three realities. In verse 11, we see the salvation from the penalty of sin. Verse 12, we see salvation from the power of sin. And in verse 13 and 14, we see salvation from the presence of sin. So let's look at what this, what this says. Let's roll up our sleeves here a little bit. And, and as Paul wrote to Timothy, let's be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Workers who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
This is not talking simply about the divine attribute of grace. In as we know it, the divine attribute of grace being the poured out blessings, the unmerited favor upon an undeserved fallen mankind. Of which it is, okay? Of which it is. But this is speaking also of that divine incarnate grace pictured in the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, grace incarnate, God's supreme gracious gift to fallen man. This grace, it says, was made available and visible to the entire universe in Jesus, entirely undeserving and available to all. As it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation, speaking of Christ, has appeared to all men. This grace has appeared to all men in that it wasn't a private vision to an Old Testament prophet. When grace came from the heavens in the person and work of Jesus Christ, this grace appeared to all men. This wasn't, again, a private vision that happened to Abraham, for example. It wasn't a private vision that was given to Jacob as he wrestled with the angel of God. This isn't a private vision like um, uh, Elijah met when he, he met the Lord and saw a vision of the Lord in the wind in the cave. This is not a private vision like the prophet Ezekiel saw, like the prophet Isaiah saw, like the prophet Jeremiah saw. This grace of God that has appeared to all men, right, that brings salvation that has appeared to all men, was a public thing. Jesus Christ came. He was born. He was raised. He lived in Bethlehem as a baby. He went to Egypt. He came back up, passed through Bethlehem and Jerusalem, lived in in uh, Nazareth. In his ministry, in his three-year ministry, as he walked and taught, amongst all of us, amongst all of them at that time, and us in God's revealed word, was public. It was not private. It was not like a private vision to Joseph Smith, okay, that happened later on in years that Joseph Smith and the Mormon church claims. It's not a private vision that happened in a cave that Muhammad um, speaks about in the religion of Islam. This is a public thing of God's grace being poured out upon mankind in the person that was fully God, fully man in Jesus Christ. This grace was attended for all ranks of men. In the very first chapter of of this short epistle from Paul, verse 12, it says, One of them... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men, given to those ranks of men also that had that reputation. It was also given and poured out among the bondservants, as it speaks in uh, the two verses prior to our text today, in verse 9 and 10, spoken to bondservants, that in the Roman times, you guys, bondservants were treated as... 
dogs. This grace of God was poured out amongst all ranks of men. In John chapter 1, verse 1, that we go to quite often, and verse 14, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And skipping down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, Father full of grace and truth. This is the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men. As we look at this verse 11, and it brings us to the appearance of all men, it says the purpose for this appearance of this grace given in the beginning of verse 12 is that this grace should be teaching us. Now, the interesting um, understanding of this word teaches in the original language in the Greek that we have in our English language, you know, translated to teaches, isn't just um, a listening in a lecture hall to a professor that's in front giving you information. This isn't just an instruction booklet, for example, that's speaking about here in that word teaches that you follow the instructions that us guys normally are not good at, right? This Greek word in the word that's translated teaching us has to do with the training and bringing up of young children. It's a deeper meaning than just teaches. What it means is, you know, that in Christ, the grace of God was manifested to deal with us as, as of sons, to educate, to train, and to prepare that this grace of God that brings salvation disciplines us, trains us up. Like we're told in, in Proverbs, to train up your children in the way they should go, right? This grace of God has been sent and poured out among us that we might be trained up, that we might be discipled, in other words to do these things in the rest of these, uh, of these verses. Another translation of this verse might be, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, disciplining us in order that we might deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now, don't view disciplining as just a negative um, penalty, you know, punishment deal. We discipline our children as we bring them up in the right things of the way to live. Part of the discipline, for example, in sports is that you know how to play the game and you discipline yourself to play the game well. One of the interesting things in here is maybe an understanding that, that grace works. I don't know if you guys have had an opportunity to study that a little bit. You know, we look at grace being just, you know, the poured out blessing of unmerited favor, right? If you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul writes to the church of Corinth and says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The grace of God with Paul labors. Grace works. These are not diametrically opposed ideas. Grace works. And the cool thing about studying this beginning of this set of scripture in verse 11 through 15, as you put together 11 and 12, you see that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, disciplining disciplining us or discipling us. You know, the light bulb went on with me when I start taking a look and thinking about the, the, um, the Great Commission that we go to all the time in, in chapter 28 of Matthew, right? Where it says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Do we understand that the grace of God that has been poured out among us and upon us is in the business of making disciples? This is the depth of that meaning of the word in the Greek that says, teaches. Grace makes disciples. Grace incarnate in the person and work of Jesus Christ makes disciples. Jesus said, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. This is what Christ does. This is what God is in the business of doing. And as we go through some of this description as to what this grace enables us to do and what this grace um, equips us and sanctifies us to live lives worthy of his calling, we get a chance to see grace working and grace in action. This grace of God provides us with a principle and understanding that enables us to discern between good and evil. And the grace of God provides us with instruction, but also with chastisement. As it says, the grace of God was manifested to deal with us as sons. Revelations chapter 3 verse 19, Christ says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This is part of our growing up process. This is part of our sanctification process. This is part of what it takes for us to be carnal-minded, worldly-living human beings and being transformed and born again by the power of the Holy Spirit of God in us, doing work in us, uh, uh, instructing us to be able to live lives worthy of who Christ is. This grace of God both restrains us and constrains us. It frees us to holiness and delivers us from the law of sin and death. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. One other little particular aspect as we look at, back to Titus chapter 2. In verse 11, the pronoun that's used, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We talked about that, right? Now it changes in verse 12 to teaching us. If you go down further, it says that we should live. 
It all of a sudden goes from a public pronoun down to a singular inclusive pronoun. So my question is, have you trusted in God's saving grace to leave the public um, um, world's perspective that, yes, we know of the historical Jesus, we know that historical Christ had died on the cross for the sins of all, and have you entered into the disciplining, um, discipling work of being the we and the us that this grace is discussing and talking about? We are holy, or being made holy, I should say, because grace exercises a purifying discipline and because we are disciples of that grace. So what is it that this grace described of here does in its disciplining to us? What is it that grace disciplines us with? And I'll narrow it down to three things, guys. Verse 12, it says it instructs us or teaches us to deny. A little further in verse 12, it instructs us or teaches us to live. And in verse 13, it instructs us or teaches us to look. Okay? To deny, to live, and to look. So that's what we're going to start getting into and taking a look at in this. It's all to deal with sin. It's all to, to save us from the penalty and the bondage that sin has over our lives. This recovery from sin is a wonderful proof of divine grace and the power thereof. It's not talking about leaving men and then saving them from its punishment. Probably the best description you know, that, that's somewhat cliche in our Christian circles, is that God will, will meet you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there, right? So this grace instructs us to deny. When the Holy Spirit of God comes into our hearts, he finds us self-centered, self-righteous, prideful practitioners of worldly wisdom and carnal policies. This is the school that we're brought up in from birth until Christ grabs a hold of our hearts and makes us his. We are worldly. That's all we know. That's all we are. We don't know any different. It's the world we live in. And this grace of God that makes disciples, that instructs us, teaches us to deny this. It's kind of like when, you know, I've heard say that, that when you go to learn foreign languages, one of the hardest things to do is to unlearn the bad habits of the language that you know, to open your mind to understand what has to be done new. It's kind of like the description that Christ said, look, you can't put new wine into an old wineskin. We've got to start from scratch. We need new wineskin to put new wine in. Otherwise, the wineskin will burst. We've got to start off with a denying and maybe unlearning what we have been raised up to learn, to know, and to operate our lives in. The first thing we are taught to deny in verse 12 is denying ungodliness. 
Ungodliness, as far as I could see in definition and understanding, is a lack of devotedness to God. And at least me, as I just take a, a, a view as to what the word ungodliness means, I tend to vision, you know, somebody that's, that's, that's um, apparently in a lifestyle of heinous sin. Right? You can see it. Um, in in, in um, um, idolatry in the form of addiction, for example. In um, just filthy, uh, sexually immoral lifestyle. You know, in some of those things. Those are the descriptions that come to my mind when I first look at the word ungodliness. But let's maybe make it a little bit more focused on who we are here in this room as followers of Jesus Christ. I, I, I submit to you this, maybe this description. How many of us maybe take on the attitude or take on the understanding or maybe the excuse, I should say, as to, you know what, I don't have time in my busy day to spend a concentrated effort of time on my knees in the presence of God in prayer. I don't have time. I have a busy schedule. I'm a busy guy. I'm a busy gal. I've got too much going at home. I don't have time for that. What about I don't have time to spend in the word of God, meditating over his word, meditating over his truth, spending time in worship over God's word on a daily basis? What about an analyzation of your conversation through the day? Is God a focal part of that? What about the acknowledgement of eternal things? What about the perspective of viewing your life from an, an eternal perspective? I guess what I'm saying is that this is also ungodliness. Anytime we separate our lives and our time and our efforts, you guys, as to being separated from God and, and, and melting into the place of this world, that's ungodliness also. And the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, instructs us and disciples us and disciplines us to deny that. Probably the best picture of how we're to be about our life in being God-word in our thinking and God-word in our actions is look at the 12-year-old Christ, you guys, in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, right? As his family had left him after the Passover celebration. I love it when they flash the verses up there. I don't have to flip through the Bible all the time. Um, verse 49, listen to this. They come back and they see him in Jerusalem and listen to what the 12-year-old Christ says. He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Is that what rules our life as we walk through minute by minute by minute through every day? It's this grace of God that does the discipling in us, that does the disciplining in us to be able to deny ungodliness and live lives like Christ had, had pictured for us about we must be about our father's business. We're also taught in this verse 12 that we should be denying worldly lusts, that the grace of God 
instructs us and teaches us and trains us up to deny worldly lusts, the lusts of this present age. If our citizenship is in heaven, we are to deny the prevailing philosophies, glories, maxims, and fashions of this present world. So in essence, we are in the world but not of the world. In essence, we are true um, pictures of the definition of being a nonconformist in this world. This is what the grace of God manifested to us in Christ incarnate, strengthens us and disciples us to do. Listen what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 Paul says, I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. James chapter 4, verse 4. James writes, and we studied this a few weeks back. James writes, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity means enemy of God. John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is the denial of that the grace of God teaches us and trains us up and strengthens us to do. It also says that grace instructs us or teaches us to live. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live. This means we don't separate ourselves from the world onto a deserted island someplace and listen to teachings all day long. That's forsaking our responsibilities. Christ prayed to the Father in John chapter 17. He said, I do not pray, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would save them from the evil one. We are not to be set aside and walled in from the world to worship and live in isolation. We are to be displaying the grace of God that is in us, shining like a darkness in the light. And this present age is the battlefield in which the soldier of Christ is to fight. This is our calling. This is who we are. And it's this grace of God that invites us in saying, look, I want you to live. He describes this living to us in three different descriptions. He says um, that we should live soberly. And this is not only soberly in our bodily appetites. We know that, and that's kind of a given, that we're not to be in drunkenness. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11... 
uh, it will say, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a given. That we're to not live life in a drunkenness fashion. But it also means that we're to be sober in all of our thinking, all of our speaking, all of our acting, and all of our worldly pursuits. I know so many people, and I'm one of them, that has a tendency to default into my flesh to be all gas pedal and no brake. Okay? Um, The grace of God disciplines us to be self-restrained and self-controlled. And one of the descriptions of the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, as you look in Galatians chapter 5, the nine attributes that make up the one description of the definition of what that fruit looks like is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what the grace of God does in our lives. It brings us up that we would have self-control. It says that we are to be living righteously. In Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 11, Likewise you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You know, we go to this verse in just a page previous to where you were in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 a lot. But let me, this, let me make this applicable to what we're talking about. In that we are to live righteously. That we're equipped by this grace of God to live righteously. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for a good work. Righteously. Dishonesty and falsehood cannot be a Christian profession without uprightness is a lie. It's a contradiction in truths. It also teaches us, this grace teaches us or instructs us to live godly. The grace of God instructs us to think much of God, that we would seek first the kingdom of righteousness, right? That we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things should be added to us. We're to be godly. That God would enter into all of our plans, that God, God's presence would be our joy, that God's strength will be our confidence, that God's providence will be our inheritance, that God's glory will be the chief end of our being, and God's law will be the guide of our conversation. And we are to pursue that godliness. As it speaks in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, it says, But reject profane and old wives' tales. And exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. 
The end of verse 12 speaks about, speaks about this present age. So what is this present age we find ourselves in? Well, we live in an age between an interval between the two appearings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our past is divided by the work of Christ at the cross, and we begin and date our present here, right? The present age with Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We have the first appearing of Christ where he came in, in meekness and in weakness, in humility and in grace. And we look forward to the second appearing of glory and of power. In this present age, we have everything to hope for in the last appearing. We have everything to trust in in the first appearing. And we're marching from one appearing to the other in haste. This present age is fleeting. You know, the description of our life, the Bible puts as a, a, um, a vapor, a vapor of smoke in the wind. I mean, just think of the word present. Think of the word now. Just that word that I said now is already in the past. It's not present anymore. Time marches on. And Christ is coming. By faith, we count these present things as insubstantial. We are sojourners and pilgrims in a foreign land. And this position between the two appearings of Christ is probably the best argument for us to have the incentive of a holy life. We are not only journeying through this present world, so let us not be dragged down with worldly sin that so easily ensnares us. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking of the fathers of faith of chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is what the present age is. In verse 13, um, grace also disciplines us to be looking as well as living. In Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 35, it says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, Jesus says, And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he returns, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We are to be looking. And it says we are to be looking for the blessed hope. Our hope is to spend eternity with him. Our hope is that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Our hope is that we will be, that we will be changed at his appearing. Our hope is that when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Our hope is that when Jesus shines forth as the sun, Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, that says, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. We're looking also for his glorious appearing. Now let me read this verse in in context and let me back away just from the word-by-word study. Take a look at this. It says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Paul, as he's writing this letter to Titus, speaks highly of the deity of Jesus Christ. This set of verses in in all my research and all my study and all my prayer is probably the, the most powerful verse speaking that Jesus Christ is God. There is no hint to or description in in the Bible here, in Scripture, that God the Father is to be appearing and we're to look for God the Father appearing. This can only be of Jesus Christ. No matter what version we take a look at, this Blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is Paul's way of saying, Jesus is God. And it says, who gave himself for us. And if you look at Ephesians, sorry, the letter is to the uh, church at Ephesus, or the, the, the um, elders of the Ephesian church, but in Acts Chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of that church. And in verse 28, he describes it this way. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us is Christ and Christ alone and he is God. It says that we are to be looking and and we're trained up to be looking for his glorious appearing, right? What does this glorious appearing look like? Well, let me just kind of read a couple of really, really descriptive passages. In Daniel chapter 7, Verse 13 and 14 says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Revelations chapter 19, listen to this description of his second coming. Now I saw a heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fight linen, fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. 
Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it will look like when he appears. This is what we wait for. This is what we know can appear any time. This is the incentive for living a holy life. This discipline of looking forward to his appearing is probably the greatest incentive for that holy life. As it speaks in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heaven will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Verse 14, let's take a, a, a little bit of the break of looking at what this grace of God that has appeared to all men is discipling us and, and disciplining us into. And let's be encouraged by looking at the person and work of this great God who manifested the, great, the grace of God who brings salvation. Let's just take a look at that. First of all, we don't struggle alone. Grace has come to rescue us. He who struggles with sin has the Holy Spirit of God. He who goes out to fight against evil in other men has the Lord of hosts with him. In the depth of difficult circumstances, the appearance of God in the person of Christ gives us courage. Like we talked about just a second ago, he promises to return. He who bowed his head in weakness and died in the moment of victory is coming again in the glory of an endless life. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, though sin and corruption abound and the love of many grow cold, these are but the signs that Christ said we would see before his appearing. It says in verse 14, who gave himself for us. This great God and Savior gave himself for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gave himself for us. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, Christ says, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And you guys... If nothing else can touch your hearts, this must. God came in the person and work of the incarnate Son of God and gave himself for us. We are no longer our own. We've been bought and paid for with a price. 
And that price is the precious blood shed on the cross by Christ himself for you and for me. He gave himself for us for two objectives. Verse 14, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. He gave himself for us for redemption and for purification. He gave himself to redeem us that he might break the bonds of sin and depravity in our lives. Romans chapter 6 verse 22 says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. He came for the second objective that he might purify us. We are being purified to be wholly his. And that's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy his. His unique special possession. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27 says that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the work of the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men. We are his own special people, it says. And the best quote I found from Charles Spurgeon says this, Each one of you is to know this. He says, Know this, that I do not belong to this world or even to myself. I belong only to Christ. And I am set aside by him for himself only, and his I will be. The silver and the gold are his. The cattle upon a thousand hills are his. But he makes a small account of them. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 9 says, The Lord's portion is his people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the description says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It says we are his own special people. For what? We're his special people that are zealous for good works, eagerly striving with enthusiasm for good works. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God that lives and reigns and dwells in us. May this divine grace that is spoken of here make us zealous for good works. We are not to be content to be quiet and inoffensive. We are not only to approve of good works and speak for them. We are to be red hot and on fire for them. We can't go about this by our own energy and our own effort, and this is what's spoken here in this, in this text. It's this grace of God that disciples us and strengthens us and equips us and enables us to be this way, to be zealous for good works. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good effort or for his good pleasure. Let me say that again. That didn't come out right. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Matthew chapter 25. You guys have read this before. Matthew chapter 25 speaks of the goats and the sheep. And I want to point out to you something and think about this scripture that we're reading in in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 to 15 as we read through this. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So all of that being said, let me just ask one question. What is the evidence that Jesus used as he's sitting on the throne of his glory to distinguish those whom he calls, you blessed of my father? Think about that. The description that he used is the good works that had poured out of a people that didn't even know they were doing good works. This was the fruit and the evidence of the Holy Spirit of God in them that was pouring itself out to people who needed help. This is Christ's work. This is being zealous for good works. Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, he says, Let us inquire whether our whole dependence is placed upon that grace which saves the lost, pardons the guilty, and sanctifies the unclean. And the further we are removed from boasting of fancied good works or trusting in them so that we glory in Christ alone, the more zealous shall we be to abound in real good works." And the last verse that we'll get into, and I suppose we can call Adam up here if he's not in this room. There he is. And and some of the guys. Verse 15 says, Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. 
These three verbs speak of this. It speaks of the need for proclamation of the gospel as it says, speak these things. And remember Romans chapter 1, verse 16 that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. It says, exhort, speak these things, exhort. It speaks of the needs to urge each other towards application of these truths. It says, rebuke with all authority. This speaks of the need to take a stand uncompromisingly upon the authority of God's word to battle against error. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Let no one despise you, the end of this section says. In other words, do not fear. Isaiah 41, the Lord says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul, in chapter 18 of Acts, as he was planting the church in Corinth, was being persecuted, he was being beaten, he was going all through all kinds of trials and tribulations, and in the night he had a vision from Christ And Christ Jesus spoke to him these words. And this is the exhortation that's being spoken of here in Titus in this passage. The Lord said in a vision to Paul that night, said, be not afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The exhortation is, Do not keep silent, but speak. And since since the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, instructing us and discipling us in these things with the exhortation of speak these things and don't let anyone despise you, think back about what the great commission that we call it is in Matthew 28. Again, where Jesus says, I have been given All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And listen to this promise. He says, and lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. As we worship in this last song, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer first. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, in Jesus' precious name, that grace of God that has appeared to all men, that teaches us, that instructs us, that disciplines us, that disciples us, that equips us, that enables us, to live lives that are worthy of your great calling. Lord, we exalt you. We lift you high.
We praise your name. And Lord, in this room, we lay down our lives before you. We lay down our lives at the invitation that you have given. This is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and him with me. And Lord God, you are our strength. You are our redeemer. You are our great sanctifier. And you are the great um, disciple maker of man. Lord Jesus, reign. Reign here on this earth. Reign here in this building. Reign here in our hearts and our minds. Reign in our identity. Reign in our heart's desires and reign in our will, God. Reign in our circumstances. Lord Jesus, save us from ourself. Separate us from this world and unto you and prepare us and equip us and enable us to be useful in your kingdom, Father. Jesus, we need you. We love you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen.